Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When Octavia Butler published her 1993 novel, Parable of the Sower, the United States was at the beginning of an economic boom. The effects of climate change still were unclear to most Americans. The Cold War had just ended with the U.S. the winner. Still, Butler foresaw a world of pain, ecological devastation, and debt slavery. Thirty years on, her world can seem prophetic. We'll discuss the work for our Forum Book Club and how Butler could see so far and so clearly. They were what I call uh, cautionary tales. Um, If we keep misbehaving ourselves, ignoring what we've been ignoring, doing what we've been doing to the environment, for instance, um, here's what we're liable to wind up with. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In Octavia Butler's 1993 novel, Parable of the Sower, we meet Lauren Olamina. As the book opens, she's living with her family in a walled compound, scratching out a life in a California devastated by climate change, grotesque inequality, brutal violence, and terrifying drugs. But amidst all that, Olamina carries a secret. She's been developing her own religion she calls Earthseed, and its central tenets inform her every move, from the core insight that God is change, to her desire to see humanity shape God by fulfilling its destiny of bringing life to other planets. The bleakness of the 2020s world Butler envisioned is matched only by the intensity and purity of Olamina's vision, which shines like a beacon for the traumatized, damaged people she gathers along her path. Butler has been lauded as prescient, but she called herself merely observant and able to imagine what the world could be like if no one bothered to change. Joining us to talk about the book, Octavia Butler's Legacy, and what speculative fiction can teach us about our own current reality are three Butler experts. We're joined first by Chelsea Frazier, a faculty fellow at Cornell University. Welcome. Oh, hi. <laughs> hi, Chelsea. Uh, feel free to jump in. It's going to be that kind of show. It's a book club, you know. Um, we also have uh, Tarsha Stanley, the Dean of the School of Humanities, Arts, and Sciences at St. Catherine University. Professor Stanley is the president of the Octavia E. Butler Literary Society and edited the Modern Language Association teaching series, Approaches to Teaching the Works of Octavia E. Butler. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you. And we have Ayana Jameson, founder of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. Um, Tarsha, Dr. Stanley, um, let's start with Octavia Butler herself. Like, who who was she? Kind of situate her life in space and time. 
Um, so Octavia Butler, um, of course, was born in 1947, and uh, she passed away in 2006, um, quite unexpectedly at a, at a very young age in her mid-50s, but really is uh, posited as the foremost, um, I would say, woman writer of speculative fiction, but certainly African-American writer of speculative fiction. Uh, so spent a lot of time as a young person, um, you know, very shy, reading quite a bit, writing a lot from a very young age and just really introspective, but also had the ability to look at um, human behavior and the world around her and really see what was going on, what was happening. So just really um, a really thoughtful kind of person throughout her entire life and one who was deeply concerned about how we were ending up treating each other as humanity. Yeah. And, you know, she was a Southern California resident for for most of her life. And I, I wonder how the Southern California of the 1980s inflected this work. So, well, oh, who wants to take that one? This is Diana. I was going to say, oh, since sure, I'm Go ahead. born and raised uh, here in California, that I could probably shed some light on that. Yeah. She was looking at um, 1980s politics, but her awareness of how things were came from her uh, growing up um, in Jim Crow, California. Her mother was a domestic. That means that um, when she was very young, they lived in the house of wealthy folks um, and her mother was a maid there. And so she got to see what she would later call man inhumani inhumanity to man as well as the things that would develop in the 1980s after everything was supposedly not Jim Crow or not under those restrictions. She could still see, you know, racial divides and class divides and also like all kinds of different people living together um, and being in community. Mm -hmm. Chelsea, um, what do you love about this book? For, for someone out there who, who hasn't read this book along with us, like what is sort of the heart of this book and, and why it's worth reading? I think the heart of this book is really centered around Lauren Olamina's experiences. And one of the things that I love the most about it is the um, kind of juxtaposition of her youth and her wisdom. Mm. I think like many, um, <clears throat> like many novels that, like many young adult novels, it's very empowering for, um, for folks that age. So it really connects with a wide variety of people given that the protagonist begins her journey at, uh, when she's a teenager. Um, and it reminds us that really when we're thinking about uh, sort of our legacy on this earth, it's always about the generations that are coming after the kind of insights that they are offering to us around how everything comes together. The denigration of our, the unfortunate denigration of our planet, various social issues that continue, um, you know, whether it be police brutality and or negligence. Um, or our very limited understandings of gender and sexuality, what you see is a character really contending with all that and really because she is at the center of all of it. And so her cool head um, to me really grounds the work and, and, and sort of keeps it moving, keeps the heart right there. Yeah. You know, Tasha, maybe you could talk a little bit about the kind of two pieces of this novel. You know, in the sort of beginning, we're with her family, uh, we're within this community of different types of people who've been kind of all <laughs> live, living for each other, basically, held together by Lauren Olamina's father. And then in the second half of the book, we have Lauren Olamina out on the road. 
um, gathering sort of new adherence to this religion of adversity. And maybe you just talk a little bit about you know, how you see those two pieces playing together. Sure. So in the first section of the novel, Lauren is behind the wall with her family and really trying to think about what it means to live in this gated community and thinking that there's a false sense of security because they're behind a wall. Uh, trying to communicate that to her father and even to the rest of the members um, in her in her neighborhood that they are not safe simply because there's a wall and then at some point they have to make plans for what happens when the wall is breached. But for the elders in her community, that's an extremely difficult concept because they are waiting for the days in which things will return to the way that they used to be. And so there's even a scene in which Lauren's father chastises her, uh, you know, about, you know, he says something about having people look in the abyss, right? And so she's saying that Lauren is very young and energetic and ready to face those challenges, but she's also up against um, the adults who aren't as ready for that and are quite fearful of the change. And as opposed to when Lauren's out on the road, um, at first alone, but she begins to very quickly collect people around her, including a, a couple of members from her community as they begin to think about what um, the rest of their, their lives will look like and trying to find a safe place, a place in which they can build a space on their own and shape it in the way that they would like. And so it's very harrowing for them out on the road as they meet all kinds of people. And as Lauren develops Earthseed even further and as she collects those um, members around her who become her family and who become her community. So, you know, one half of the book, the early part of the book is we're behind this wall, afraid of what's out there. And then in the second part, we're on the road facing all of the fears. Mm -hmm. And we've realized there really is a lot of stuff to be afraid of. It's a terrifying world um, that, that she really presents. And, you know, Ayana, I wanted to ask you about Lauren's other secret, which we didn't mention at the top, which is that she has what's described in the book as a sort of drug-induced condition, uh, condition called hyper-empathy, where when she hurts somebody or she sees someone hurt at all, she feels that pain herself as if it had happened to her. What do you think that play, what role does that really play in the book and in, and in your thought about the book? Sure. So Lauren has something called hyperempathy syndrome, which is drug induced to the uh, degree that her mother was a college student um, taking some kind of Alzheimer's drug in order to do well in school. And the resulting um, birth defect is a, an overactive an overstimulated limbic system. So when she sees someone bleeding or hurt or even um, sees, sees someone um, experiencing pleasure, she feels those things in her own body. Um, and what interested me in this book was that even though Octavia herself said that hyperempathy syndrome was an organic delusion, we see in the archive, but also in elsewhere in clinical literature, that people do experience an overactive limbic system and hyperempathy. Um, uh, even though Butler herself denied that it was um, an actual thing when the literature that was there at the time um, and in her earlier writing um, that even in some unpublished works, we see that she understood what this was perhaps from the inside. What do you mm. think? Hmm. This, it's interesting. I mean, you know, in, in, in this book, I, I've thought a lot about through time why she needs to have that 
like what I, you know, I've thought about it as a writer, what it does for the plot, right? Because she requires other people. She can't in a violent world where she must use violence sometimes. She actually can't protect herself alone, which drives her towards community. And then she finds other people um, who have uh, similar things. It also seems to give her, you know, almost um, un- unbearable insights about uh, other folks. W- what do you think, Tarsha Stanley? Well, you know, I, I really like the concept of hyper empathy. And especially when I'm reading it with students, they they like it. And then they all say, I'm a hyper empath. And um, but part of why why I like it so much is because it forces us to have to think about empathy. And what is that? And oftentimes when I am teaching the book and reading the book, I'm doing it through a leadership lens. And so really looking for those things that are different about the way Lauren and Butler's other protagonists lead in these apocalyptic situations. And so for me, although it's dangerous for her, although she's having to really think about the people she's around and how to defend herself so she doesn't end up you know, hurting herself when she means to defend herself because she can feel what other people feel, I think that it's really important for us to think about empathy as an important part of how we build community and how we uh, live in community with one another. And so Lauren's ability to feel what other people can feel ends up being a superpower in a way because it helps her become the kind of intuitive leader that she is because she has to think about the other person. She has to, it's, it's her own uh, protection that is at, at stake that she has to think about how the other person will see this, what lens will they look through, how will they react and that that's a really important part of community building. And it's a really important part of what it means, I think, to 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 be a leader. Yeah. This is Forum's Book Club. We're talking about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower with Tarsha Stanley, Dean of the School of Humanities, Arts and Sciences at St. Catherine University. Ayan Jameson, founder of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network. And Chelsea Frazier, faculty fellow at Cornell University. Are you a fan of Octavia Butler? What's your favorite line or character in this book. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or the emails forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more book club. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum's Book Club, and we're talking about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, one of my all-time favorite books of any kind. We're joined by Tarsha Stanley, Dean at the School of Humanities, Arts, and Sciences 
at St. Catherine University, Ayanna Jameson, the founder of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network, and Chelsea Frazier, a faculty fellow at Cornell University. And we do want to hear from you. Uh, we have another question for you. Octavia Butler wrote, I don't predict the future. All I do is look around at the problems we are neglecting now and give them about 30 years to grow into full-fledged disasters. You know, what problems are we neglecting that you think might become full-fledged disasters? Like, what do you think we'll be confronting in 2050 if we're willing to be clear-eyed and and honest? Chelsea Frazier, I wanted to ask you about Octavia Butler's presentation of of sort of climate change and ecological devastation. Um, Just talk a little bit about the vision that, that she presents yeah, and actually I can tie that into what we were talking about with uh, hyper empathy as well. Um, the vision that she presents of kind of our current ecological, or the, the ecological situation within the novel is very dire. And um, it is the result of years and years and years of people feeling very disconnected from their environments and um, really being attached to cultural practices that lead us to really, really devastating results. But one of the things that I love so much about the hyper empathy device in the novel is that in addition to the fact that you can, that Lauren uh, can feel the feelings of others, other humans, she can also feel the feelings of other non-human entities like animals. And so um, what Octavia Butler does is present a really dire ecological situation where we have come to, uh, this moment where, you know, everyone is completely disconnected um, to also, she also presents the antidote, which is, okay, well, but what if there was something that really streamlined our connection, not only to each other, but also to other forms of life on the planet that we've grown far more disconnected from. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's one of the things that I think that one of the really useful things that she presents sort of thinking uh, in my role as an eco-critic, you know, thinking about art, literature, and the environment. What, what kind of cues, what kind of tools are in our literary works that can help us really deal with our present ecological situation so that it doesn't continue to get worse? That's a great point. Ayana, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, I mean, we're both California residents. We have experienced drought. We've experienced a lot of fires in the past few years. And I, I imagine, like me, probably read this book in the past and have read it more recently and, th- and thought about it more recently do you, does it feel different for you now, now that we've been through so such bad drought and we've seen such terrible fire seasons, reading it now versus reading it, you know, in the past? I would say it does feel different to me um, when I'm reading it and teaching it because I'm seeing it through the eyes of my students, as Tasha, Dr. Stanley said, but also um, because we see like, for example, there's all this flooding um, and pollution in India. So the conditions that are in the novel, like as Walida Imarisha says, there's already apocalypse in someone's world while we are maybe not experiencing it. And as a parent who has a child born around the time that Olamina is born Mm. and having lived through the pandemic while the fires were burning literally right outside my window in the foothills of the San Gabriel mountains, it's a way different experience. Um, It's very triggering. And there's a lot of trauma that, um, I'm witnessing um, the, tra- the, the, the problems are um, even more present. And then the rains that we get that then wash down the mountains that have just burned. 
uh, I mean, all the air pollution that was has been happening throughout the last 24 months in the Bay and things like that, where people couldn't go outside. So it's so it's more, more like the novel than I would have anticipated when I originally read it. Yeah. It's chilling. I, I tried to pick it up at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I couldn't do it. I got about nope. 20 pages in. I just put it down. I was just like, you know, I can't, I can't do this right now. You know, it was during the, yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a difficult read now. It's actually a harder read for me now um, than it used to be. Um, and, you know, Dr. Stanley, one thing I, I wanted to, to ask you about, the more I think about the book, the more it really does seem to posit that we've been living through a bubble in time, a kind of fossil-fueled bubble of plenty, and that when that ends, humanity will kind of return to the long-term baseline where, you know, water, food, weapons, and human bodies in particular are what determine kind of wealth. Can you talk about the the relationship between the kind of ecological change that we see and the sort of way that slavery begins to kind of creep into and then haunt this novel? So I think that, you know, when we think about having lived in a bubble, um, you know, it depends on where you were and who you are and how you've been living. So I think that part of what's difficult about Butler's work for, for you know, and, and I love her work, but I don't love her work because it gives me pleasure. I love it because it makes me work mm-hmm. and it makes me think really hard about these issues. Um, so this work that she asked us to do is also around thinking about um, the inheritances that, that you know, sort of this bubble of plenty has, has left for other people outside of that. And in the novel, when she talks about families who cannot, uh, they can't make it, there's no place for them to work, they are struggling, they have to end up uh, turning over their autonomy to these companies and moving into to company housing, company villages, company towns, um, where pretty much, you know, all of their free will is taken from them that, you know, it seems, you know, and particularly in the first readings, it, you know, years ago, it seemed like, wow, that's, that's, you know, that is slavery, but that's not happening now, but it, it is, and it has always happened, and it just depends on who you are and um, what your experiences are, you know, but we have to think about, I think Butler's asking us to think about the ways in which we're headed to this place again, in which this looks normal, as it was, this is the way to survive, that I have to turn over, I have to become a sharecropper, that I have to give up everything and, and sign my life and my family over to an entity um, in order just to survive and to have us thinking about that and thinking about the ways our economy is so uneven and you know the way you experience it depends on who you are, where you live, what you have access to, what your skin looks like and really asking us to think about that before it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck by just what an incredible rejection this book is of a kind of um, mark, you know, arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, a way of thinking, which, you know, was was pretty prevalent in the 1990s, as as I recall them. Um not everywhere, as you as you note, obviously, <laughs> very dependent on which communities uh, were there. But I, I do think it was a strain of American culture um, to 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 want to believe that. Let's call it that. Um, let's bring in Marsha from Santa Rosa. Welcome to the show, Marsha. Hello. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I I told the person on the phone that the thing that. I thought was really powerful in this parable of the solar was the poetry that she wrote Mm. to encourage people about 
the religion of Earthseed and how people were attracted to the religious concepts through her poetry. And I also had a question about the relationship to the stories in the Bible mm. that uh, the titles are taken from the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents. I'm wondering if the speakers on, the, on your panel could comment on the poetry and the Bible story relationships. Absolutely. Thank you for that uh, question, Marsh. That's a great one. I just Let me just read one of the poems. It's the one that uh, opens the book. Um, they're sort of... How to describe these? They're 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 verses. They're 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 sacred text uh, for Earthseed. Um, and the first one goes like this: All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. And she, within this book, Lauren Olamina, kind of explains and unspools um, these poems, which interspersed these verses that which are sort of interspersed throughout the novel. Um, Dr. Stanley, do you want to uh, take the sort of relationship between Earthseed and these verses and the biblical stories that sort of give their names to both this book and its sequel, The Parable of the Towns? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Butler, uh, when we read about her upbringing and, you know, her having been in a very strict religious upbringing, that she is in many ways working out through Lauren um, this idea of what it means to live in a Judeo-Christian society in which it says one thing often and does another. And um, really thinking about what then would be the alternative to that? How can we think about how to treat one another fairly, how to be respectful of the planet? What does that look like? And really taking change as the element in which, you know, because so much of, of the way we mistreat one another has to do with fear and really looking at what are we afraid of, you know, a change in hierarchy, a change in position, and really helping us confront what it means to change. Um, you know, lots of, of the, um, you know, critics around her book talk about Earthseed as a new religion, and we know that people um, resonate with this, that a lot of folks see this as something, a tenets that they can uh, resonate with that they can believe in. And, and, I, and I think all of that is really true. But I, when I read the text, I also am reading it, trying to think about, you know, what are the lessons here? And um, for me, I really love her using, you know, biblical text and rewriting them, reworking them, shaping them to another purpose, because I see in that um, a tradition, particularly with African-American um, you know, writers and thinkers and critics and theologians to shape God in an image uh, that is beneficial to them. And so I see her doing that same kind of work and really thinking about what does it mean to shape those messages that, um, you know, are at the, the heart of our society in a way that is beneficial to those people who sometimes get left out. So for me, it is very poetic in terms of her bringing in um, you know, titles from biblical titles and the way in which she uses her tenants. But it's also a question of really thinking about um, her expertise at really thinking about how we shape those things that we've been given into something we can actually use mm. and, you know, reworking those things into something that can actually help us grow. Yeah. Ayanna Jameson, what's your relationship to Earthseed as a, I guess as a set of ideas or a spiritual practice or a, you know, a literary device, like how do you, how does it resonate with you? Well, I think it's interesting. Um, there's an, uh, a time when Octavia was um, uh, 
somewhere speaking and a person came up to her and said, oh, I love Earthseed. It's so wonderful. I, I believe in it. It's beautiful. And she flat out rejected that. She said it's not comforting enough. It's not meant to be followed in that way, literally. I think she's more urging people to look at change as an archetype. Um, the way God for her is an archetype and a metaphor for an organizing pattern mm. that um, you cannot pray to that doesn't have control over your life. I think she really wants people to make choices for themselves. And when she's speaking through Lauren and Lauren gets in trouble for t- sharing with her friend jo- uh, Joanne, her father says not to scare mm-hmm. her. She's she's really speaking to us about taking responsibility for our actions and learning and contributing to the community I think it's, they're really beautiful. Um, uh, there's some really um, prescient ones, especially with the political candidate and choose your, choose your um, leaders wisely and your teachers are all around you. They're really beautiful, but I don't know if they're meant to be literal all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know what anyone else thinks. No, no, I'm, I, I'm with you. Like, I, I, I think the way you just put it is actually the, the words that I've been searching for for years, which is just, I kind of see it as almost an organizing pattern for my own spiritual sense. You know, I, I didn't grow up in a very religious household. In fact, I grew up with a quite anti-clerical father. Uh, and when I first encountered this work, I think I read it in a very basic way. I just kind of thought like, these, these feel like some very interesting truths about the way the world works and doesn't require me to believe anything I don't want to believe. Um, it's a it's a fascinating. I guess the way that it hits different people is always um, so interesting to me. And so Chelsea Fraser, just as we're going around the horn here, what's what's your relationship uh, to Earthseed? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I always think about the relation. To me, when I whenever I read this novel, it sticks out is um, the relationship between Christianity and Earthseed. To me, mirrors the relationship between Lauren and her father. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of continuity there, um, which I think that even though Lauren rejects her father's teaching, she says it, you know, right there at the beginning of the of the novel. But she also, I think, intuitively recognizes that she wouldn't be able to conceive of herself and of Earthsea without really thinking about how her father has conceived of himself in relationship to Christianity and what that has done mm. in order basically through um, through his work as a pastor and and a community leader, she's able to kind of take that blueprint and 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 and, and, and evolve it. And she has to evolve it very fast um, and uh, and into Earth Seed and into because she also becomes a community leader. Um, and, is, and, is, and, and he's grooming her to be that, you know, um, and hopefully his hope, of course, is not that it turns out the way that it does where she's sort of like, you know, with this Motley crew in this in- incredibly dangerous journey. But that's what ends up being necessary. And, wh- and part of the reason she's able to do that is because of his teachings, even as his teachings, you know, as she under under her preview are under her purview are not appropriate for this present moment um, yeah. that she's navigating. And so for me, Earthseed, uh, while it isn't, while it's not a, a spiritual practice or sort of anything outside of anything like that, for me personally, it is something that constantly reminds me about holding on to that which does not serve and ways to release that in order to be um, accountable to the present moment, right? Mm-hmm. 
And as our new community leaders are emerging, some of them who will be very, very young elders, that's something that they're going to have to keep in mind, not only in a literary sense when appreciating this, this work of art, but also in general. Yeah. Just, I want to hear Octavia's voice again, just so distinctive, so, so interesting. Um, let's play cut three. It's just uh, Octavia Butler talking about her views on religion, on democracy now. Religion is everywhere. There are no human societies without it, um, whether they acknowledge it as religion or not. So I thought um, religion might be an answer as well as, in some cases, a problem. And in, for instance, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, it's both. Yeah. And she's referring there to not only Ursid as at least a partial solution to the problems, but a sort of um, marriage, a sort of Christian fascist state that's sort of emerging um, at the same time as the, the book occurs. This is Forum's Book Club. We're talking about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower with Chelsea Frazier, a faculty fellow at Cornell University, Ayanna Jameson, founder of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network, and Tarsha Stanley, the uh, dean at the School of Humanities, Arts, and Sciences at St. Catherine University. Professor Stanley is also president of the Octavia E. Butler Literary Society and edited the Modern Language Association teaching series Approaches to Teaching the Works of Octavia E. Butler. would love to hear from you as well. How has speculative fiction helped you understand today's reality? What do you think about uh, of the trend towards dystopian fiction? Uh, it was quite unusual to have a black teenage lead character in the early 1990s in dystopian fiction. We've seen all kinds of trends kind of moving towards these young narrators. And last question for you. Octavia Butler said, I don't predict the future. All I do is look around at the problems we're neglecting now and give them about 30 years to grow into full-fledged disasters. What problems are we neglecting that you think might become full-fledged disasters? And what do you think we'll be confronting in 2050? Give us a call now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more book club after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back. This is Forum's Book Club. We're talking about Octavia Butler's sensational novel, Parable of the Sower, with Chelsea Frazier, faculty fellow at Cornell University, Ayanna Jameson, founder of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network, and Tarsha Stanley, the dean at St. Catherine University. I want to get to a couple of uh, listener comments. Reed tweets, the Oakland Museum of California had a wonderful exhibit. Uh, now closed due to water damage, unfortunately. Mothership, Voyage into Afrofuturism with a wonderful Octavia Butler tribute. I learned much of her extraordinary life there. If you're interested, but it is closed, we did a show actually on that Afrofuturism exhibit, uh, which you can find in the archives. Uh, there, Monica also writes, Parable of the Sower is one of the most important books in my life have recommended it to just about everyone in my life. For me, the most important concept, the only constant in life, is change. I always thought that Lauren was uh, worthwhile to listen to. I didn't recognize how the environmental and social issues could develop so quickly and with such ferocity. Octavia has long been my hero alongside Ray Bradbury. And Ayanna, I want to direct this comment uh, to you. One of my favorite and most horrifying, uh, this is Michelle. Michelle writes, one of my favorite and most horrifying elements in the novel is the allusion to the return of company towns and script. I shudder to think of the day mega companies like Amazon begin to save us by benevolently offering to govern, pay, and subsequently conscript us. What do you think about that theme within the novel, Anne? Uh, I, it's interesting that there was a company town um, in driving distance uh, from where I live uh, in what is now Montebello, California, an industry where mm. the Simons Brickyard um, at the uh, early uh, 1900, uh, excuse me, in 1920, 1930 was the largest producer of bricks in the world. Many municipal uh, huh. things were built with these bricks, but people were living in probably what we would think is abject poverty and only able to buy things at the company town. I'm struck by how people that the height of the beginning of the pandemic were sleeping in their offices, taking care of servers instead of returning home to their families, the same way that medical personnel who were in danger of spreading COVID to their relatives were. So we're, I don't know how far off we are of that um, given the, you know, struggles people are having with docking pay if they're not returning to work in offices. I'm not sure what will happen, but it's happening in other places already. We are just not seeing the effects of it maybe immediately in front of us. And maybe that's where hyper empathy sort of comes back in. Um, having some kind of empathy for other people who you can't see. Uh, and, um, knowing that if someone else is hurt, if you hit someone else, you'll feel it too. Mm -hmm. But corporations, maybe, I don't know if they represent a they lack of They may not be hyper-empathic. <laughs> <laughs> you think they are encouraging a, an empathy deficit? Yeah. It's an, I mean, uh, one of the things that struck me uh, uh, in thinking about this book for the show is the movie Nomadland, which maybe some people have seen of, you know, uh, Francis McDormand setting out to work, you know, at the... Amazon facility, but then a series of other jobs in which she's sort of isolated, sometimes in danger. Um, and there's this, it's, it's not the same, obviously, as this in which the world has completely collapsed, but it's like uh, one of those threads. I want to bring in uh, David from Oakland into our conversation. Welcome, David. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm calling in because I 
you know, this is my first time reading the book, and my wife texted me. She was like, oh, my God, they're talking about it on forum. But um, so I just love the concept of Baba's change and how she weaves that in. And, and you were talking about this earlier, how, you know, one of the biggest struggles for other characters in the book besides Lauren is to kind of accept this concept and to digest this and how it's going to apply to them. You know, you through the lens of, you know, not growing very religious, we're like, oh yeah, like these ideas make sense to me. And like, I, you know, they don't jive with anything that exists in the world. Like they're very scientific concepts, but they're very confronting for people. And in terms of like, you know, what will be the downfall of us in the future? I think actually like humans inability to adapt to change and to acknowledge it has always been like one of our greatest downfalls is that we're slow to respond. We're quick to react, but we don't project out into the future and, you know, act accordingly. And she even talks about this at the end of the novel when she's like these seeds, she's like, I wasn't even, I had this whole like survival pack, but I didn't update my seeds. Like, why was I not doing that? Yeah. You know, so. God, I know. Yeah. The second I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, we need to redo that, our water barrel here in case there's an earthquake. <laughs> you know, you got the water barrel out there. You haven't put in the new tablet. You know, every, we all have these mm-hmm. earthquake packs with envi- expired food in them. We all know that there's an earthquake that's going to come. And we, even when we've taken the steps, we then um, stop taking all the steps exactly the right way. Um, thank you for that, David. I wanted to uh, pivot off of your, your comment about Earthseed. Uh, just to ask Chelsea Frazier, uh, faculty fellow at Cornell University, about the other piece of Earthseed, which we haven't really talked about, which is not the deeply grounded goddess change um, sort of adaptability and, and survival kind of verses but the destiny of humanity, which is actually the hardest part for a lot of characters to accept. They don't even take it seriously. This idea that what humans should do is leave Earth and spread conscious life to the stars. So, Chelsea Frazier, it's not exactly, it's interesting because it's such a departure from, from so much of the book, this destiny. So what do you make of it? Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. This part of it is very hard for me as well, um, especially as someone who's a Earth lover. Um, but what I think, <laughs> but what I think um, is one of the most useful things for me is just thinking about evolution, right? Because if we think about it on sort of a, in a in a literal way, um, some of the things that Octavia Butler talks about in in interviews and and also these themes come up in other in different works of hers as well. Um, you know, she's just like, humans can't get their act together. So maybe they need a challenge that is so <laughs> monumental <laughs> that they will have to um, rely on each other in ways that are more evolved than the kind of like hierarchical, I'm better than you behavior that uh, kind of devolution that we see, um, not only in, in um, the parable series, but also in the um, in Dawn and, and some other of her works as well. Um, and, and so that's sort of one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is kind of like the, the, the logical extreme of that evolution, that, that change that is um, resonant throughout the novel, um, that, you know, not only, not only is it possible for us to reach these heights, even though we're, we're sort of like 
trapped in our survival instincts and in our kind of like lowest vibrational energy. Um, but also as a metaphorical reminder that, um, that we were always, you know, to go back to some of the Afrofuturist themes, we were always beyond this earthly place, mm. right? We were always beyond this earthly understanding of, of survival, life, death. Um, there's always an intelligence that we can reach for that is beyond what we can immediately, we can see directly in front of us. So mm. those are just some of the ways that I like to approach um that aspect of Earthseed, you know, from kind of like a literal political ecology sense, like what does this really mean in terms of <laughs> in terms of space exploration, you know, yeah. um, and also metaphorically, what does this mean in terms of reminding us what we are as human beings, as intellectual beings, as energetic beings, etc. Ayana Jameson, I, I mean, I think you know, fascinating piece of this is. I have come to interpret this almost like as a as a political stand, like that essentially you have to go beyond mere survival, even if surviving is so, so, so hard. Like you still need to have some dream, some heaven, some some larger destiny to look forward to. Um do you, do you find that is like a, in a when you talk with people about this in the in the Octavia Butler Legacy Network? Do you find that interpretation holds for people, or do you find that 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 people take it in other directions? Um, I think um, I think it's always a both and answer. We have um, the moon, uh, excuse me, the Mars landing site um, has been named Octavia E. Butler Landing. The destiny of Earth Seed is to take root among the stars. Right. Mm-hmm. However. Um, she, she has this verse um, at the beginning of chapter 19, changes, the galaxies move through space, the stars ignite, burn, age, cool, evolving, God is changed, God prevails. I think she's calling us to know that we are part of the universe and that we have to be in harmony with it, not just to leave and abandon this planet, but to take care of yourselves and each other. Um, and then lastly, I think... Um, we are among the stars. Um, yeah. There's the parable of the sower opera. And what Toshi Regan says is that um, it says, take root among the stars, but we are already among the stars. We have the stars in us. There's a Carl Sagan quote that's written down in the archives. And um, of course, we have had Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about our relationship to the stars and we are star stuff. I think that's part of what Octavia was getting at as a child who watched the space race and and knew how it really inspired people and really brought people together. Um, So I don't know. I think it's lovely, but also scary that people, she didn't want to go and colonize other places. She couldn't finish writing Parable of the Trickster because she couldn't think of how would we go to another planet without being imperialist colonizers. Um, So there's a lot there. Yeah, it there, there really is. And it's and it, I think that I'm always struck by is in these two novels, the you know, Parable of the Sower and and its sequel, she keeps insisting that you that on the destiny. Like it would have been so much easier for Lauren Alamina to spread her, her her faith if she just was willing to just give it up. But but she's not. She's not. And that to me it's always been you know, one of those um, one of those literary things that sort of never quite ever fully explained, and because of that, it continues to sort of draw draw power. 
Um, I want to uh, add in Peter from San Francisco. Welcome, Peter. Oh, hi. Um, yeah, I'm a high school teacher, and I've been reluctant to use this book in my class. Um, uh, the teenagers, well, a lot of our students are pretty anxious, and there's some you know, sensitivity stuff, and it's just like a heavy book. And uh, I just wanted to get some feedback on the ideas, uh, how to approach it with, with teenagers, uh, there's a lot on their plate. We teach them about climate change and the pandemic and racism, and it's like all this heavy stuff. And uh, this book is pretty... It's got all good. of that in it. Hey, uh, yeah. Uh, Tarsha Stanley, what do you think? Um, I think it's a great book to teach with young people. Um, you know, but prep them before you do, recognizing that, again, it's not typical what they would typically think of as, as science fiction in that, you know, there isn't, you know, you know, sort of like the trope of the Jedi and those kinds of things. But it is about thinking about where we are headed and who we are as human beings. So I think it's great to take it in small chunks and to make sure they're talking to each other, to make sure that they are um, thinking of a project that they would like to do around the book. I've taught it a lot to um, to first and uh, first year and second year college students, and they will they will find in it what they need to find in it. I read the book in 2019 with a group of students, and I think one of the things that uh, resonated with them so much is that they were able to link it to uh, when we when the book talks about um, having to have uh, resources in order to call the fire department, and they were able to link that to what was happening at that particular time around the Kardashians and the fact that they have to they had to call in a, a private, private fire. firefighters, right? And they took that. They found what was important to them, what they could see in today and built incredible projects around that, incredible papers, um, you know, started book clubs with other people. So I think don't don't be afraid. They will find their way. They will pull out of it what they need to pull out of it, um, both now and in the future, because those same students come back later and say, I reread it or now that I'm thinking about it in this way, because it is so multi-layered. But, uh, you know, it's nothing that they don't see every day on social media that they don't face, you know, every day. But give them a way, give them a language to deal with that and to talk about it and to build community around it. And so I wouldn't be so much afraid that it would be triggering because the world is triggering. Um, I just would give them an opportunity to figure out how they want to move through the book and let them be in conversation with you about that. Hmm. Let's uh, hear cut to I just I, I can't I can't stop going back to Octavia Butler. Um, let's uh, hear this kind of her talking about sort of her approach to sci fi. I think I stayed with it because it was so wide open. It gave me the chance to comment on every aspect of humanity. Um, people tend to think of science fiction as, oh, Star Wars or Star Trek. And the truth is there are no closed doors and there are no required formulas. You can, um, you can go anywhere with it. Let's bring in Tony from Oakland into our conversation. Welcome, Tony. Hey, good morning, everybody. First off, I just want to thank you uh, for putting this on for today. Uh, it being a day off for many of us, I definitely am appreciating all this because I love Octavia Butler. And uh, I think her work really, uh, and I also want to say huge snaps uh, Ms. Ch to Chelsea, ma'am, because all of your points really resonate with me that you've been making today. And, uh, and honestly, I don't have much else to say on top of that, except her work really for me really express the interconnectedness that is a part of change and that we really have the choice to either be disconnected in that change or interconnected. And so I think the strength of that uh, still resonates for me when I share with people like 
what, you know, what Octavius Butler work means to me. And I also uh, encourage everyone that I meet, uh, you know, who thinks deeply to read her work. Yeah. That's all I have to say. Yeah. No, thank you so much for that, uh, Tony. And I think you know, one of those ways that people are interconnected in this book is is through race and through the way that the different characters who are a multiracial cast come to, to understand community. Um, Dr. Uh, Ion Jameson, maybe you could reflect on that in the, in the sort of complex and subtle ways that Octavia Butler uh, presents racial division and the possibility for unity. Well, I think one of the things that she, she notices separates people is um, when others don't have something or when others are weak uh, or vulnerable, like the couple traveling with the baby, um, she thinks those people need protection. What can we offer them? How can we bring them into our community and strengthen our community by protecting and extending our um, our scope of um, reach and influence to include these people who have been left out? And I think that's one of the things that inspired me to um, create Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network is just seeing how many people are on the margins doing work um, and how we can enfold them in our lives and make them our community and make them our family members. I think it's been a really beautiful thing. Um, I think Octavia E. Butler gives us all to one another, right? She allows us to connect with each other um, through her work and the work that we want to do in this world, in this present, um, with her as an ancestor. I think it's really um such a beautiful gift. Every single book, even when it uh, does have heavy subject matter, always has this beautiful element of just people connecting deeply um, and authentically. That's beautiful. This has been Forum's Book Club. We've been talking about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower with a powerful panel of Butler scholars, Dr. Chelsea Frazier, faculty fellow at Cornell University, Dr. Ayana Jameson, founder of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network, and Dr. Tarsha Stanley, dean of the School of Humanities, Arts, and Sciences at St. Catherine University. just want to leave you with one short last verse from Earthseed, the Books of the Living. To get along with God, consider the consequences of your behavior. Definitely been a theme for me. Um, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. And thank you so, so much for everyone who read along with us and with our panel. Thanks so much. Say I know if you call me, I will be right on time. Well, I know if you call me, I will be right on time. Don't know where I'm going, but I'll get there right Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.